This was a, a, tough, a tough week uh, for me in prepping the sermon and taking my wife into UCLA to get this facial surgery that went good, we think, but it was just a little more intense than we had anticipated. And so here we are. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 8. Last week, we looked at the first part of Daniel's vision contained in this chapter. It's really one long vision, but I broke it into two parts because as you'll see, this part's pretty long. Uh, it began with a seemingly, the vision began with a seemingly unstoppable two-horned ram that was then crushed by a more powerful one-horned goat. And finally, the goat's one horn was broken and replaced by four horns. Then, uh, the vision goes on, and that's the part we're going to get to today, but then we jump down, and beginning in verse 19, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel the meaning of his vision. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. The reason for the vision is to make known this appointed time of the end, this, this time of indignation, and, and it's ending, really, that it would end. It's telling God's people that in their future, there's going to be a time of wrath, indignation, but it will come to an end. And in Scripture, the expression, the appointed time of the end, the, the in, time of the end is not necessarily referring to the end of history associated with uh, Christ's return, setting all things right, it can also refer to the end of a significant period of time, a fulfillment of a prophecy, and that certainly seems to be the case here in Daniel 8, because Gabriel goes on to establish that this vision is not about the end of history, but historically just around the corner for Daniel. Verse 20, as for the ram that you saw, you know, here it is, here's what it is. Uh, with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So this Medo-Persian empire, one horn was larger, one smaller, different power. Remember, Daniel received this vision while the Babylonians were ruling. But Babylon, in just a few short years from Daniel's time, from receiving this vision, would be conquered by the Persian king Cyrus. In verse 21, and the goat is the king of Greece... And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. We know uh, that the first king of Greece, Alexander the Great, conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. And finally, verse 22, as for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And those four kingdoms that arose are certainly the four kingdoms established by Alexander's four very powerful generals. When they uh, divided his kingdom upon Alexander's death in 323 BC. You guys, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll use a few dates this time. So get in your brain. Dates are going in. So think, here's, here's zero. And going backwards, they get larger. So we're get, they're going to get smaller as we get close to 1 AD or, I mean, 1 yeah, 80, 80. And so, so this is 350 years later. I mean, this is 323 years before Christ. Uh, 
that, that Alexander died and the kingdoms were established. So that was the part of the first vision. That was the part of the vision that we looked at last week. Now today we come to what's really the focus of the vision, which includes the latter end of this indignation. The ram and the goat were in many ways uh, merely there to set the stage. Uh, There's a progression to this end, to fix the vision in time and to show that it was from God. As people are looking back after this takes place, as they're looking back, they're going, oh, that, the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Grecian Empire, and so we know something's coming. So now we turn to the little horn, the vision of it and its meaning. Beginning in verse 8, we read, backing up just for context, then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, so the goat, yeah, we got that, uh, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south toward the east, and toward the glorious land. After the one-horned goat's kingdom had split into four parts, that is, after the Grecian empire's first king, Alexander the Great, died, 423 B.C., the empire was split into four parts, each headed by one of his generals. And out of one of those four parts will come this little horn. It will grow or conquer in the south, and in the east. But the focus of the vision will be on its attack on the glorious land, which we talked about last week as of being Israel. Now, to help us see this, let me show you a map of the division of Alexander's empire. So I'm going to look at the map back there. You guys can look here. I can sort of see it. So we have uh, General Cassander, which is gray-colored in the north the Northwest, General Antigonus, sort of brown colored in the center, which includes Israel. You see Jerusalem there. General Ptolemy, grayish as well in the south. This is Egypt, the area of Egypt. And General Seleucus, Seleucus, green in the center, uh, moving more to the east. And if you notice, there's another section in the northeast it was established by another general, Lysimachus, shortly after this original division. So he's, he made the map as well. Now for clarity, I want to remind you that this part of the vision, prophecy, the goat with the four horns and the little horn will look, that we're going to look at today is fulfilled historically in the roughly 400-year period between the Old Testament and the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. This is known as the intertestamental period, okay? 400 years, approximately. It begins at the end of Malachi's uh, ministry in 420 B.C. and ends, this intertestamental period, with the appearance of John the Baptist in the early first century A.D. So all this is taking place shortly after... uh, uh, Shortly before uh, 170-ish, 170-ish years before Christ came into the world, okay? So that's, it's not in the Old Testament, it's not in the New Testament, it's in between when this stuff is taking place. The vision was given in the Old Testament to Daniel, but its fulfillment is in this intertestamental period, okay? 
Now, does anyone know or remember which kingdom the little horn, I'm going to say probably, most certainly, however you want to put it, comes from? Which of these four? Anybody remember? Anybody know? You guys, I, did I say it last week? I thought I did. Well, what was it, Julia? Oh, come on. S. The Seleucid Empire, Seleucus, uh, or the Seleucid Empire. Last week I said this little horn is almost certainly uh, one who would be king, Antiochus IV. He, his name, he wasn't born Antiochus, he took that name. It's kind of a king name. What, there, have been, there were other kings along the way named Antiochus. This is the almost universal belief, this belief that he's Antiochus uh, Bible scholars. However, let me mention that I do know that some people believe this little horn, along with, not instead of, but along with being Antiochus, also represents, maybe in a, in a fuller way, the future end times Antichrist, the beast of Revelation 20. And even though, like all evil tyrants, they share many common characteristics, I don't see the need or the benefit of attributing what we read today about the little horn to the future Antichrist. John, in his book of Revelation, gives us plenty of info about him. Daniel, however, God is giving Daniel, however, I think almost certainly a specific vision about Antiochus IV. And that's all I have to say about that. Okay. So who was Antiochus IV? And why do most Bible scholars believe he's this little horn? Well, he was the brother of Seleucus IV. Not the original general, but the fourth, who ruled the Seleucid Empire from 187 to 175, again going lower towards that, B.C. And after Seleucus died in 175 B.C., Antiochus declared himself to be king through some uh, uh, sort of dastardly deeds even. The rightful heir would have been Seleucus' son, but Antiochus sort of took power. And in 175 BC, Antiochus became the ruler of the Seleucid Empire. And one of the things he did, as we saw in the passage, was use his military to expand his territory. He expands to the east and to the south specifically. To the south, he nearly conquered, historically, the Ptolemaic Empire in Egypt. And as you can see from the map, it's still up there, okay, good. To reach the Ptolemaic Empire in the south... You need pass through the glorious land of Israel. So he took some of the, that, that, uh, the general Antigonus as well. You see Jerusalem there? Okay. That's sort of the focal point. Back to the vision. Verse 10. Still speaking of the little horn, we read, It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Okay, what's up with that? So the little horn is growing, conquering to the east and the south, apparently on earth, but there also seems to be a heavenly component to his attacks. In Scripture, specifically in Isaiah, you find it in Revelation, the host, the stars of heaven refer to God's angelic army. And that would mean that the Prince of Hosts probably refers to God himself. So what's happening here? Uh, did Antiochus somehow get a flaming chariot and assault the gates of 
heaven, fight against God and his angels? No. What I and others, I don't, I don't make this stuff up usually, <laughs> usually, that's funny, uh, think this means is that behind these earthly battles that Antiochus was waging, there's also a spiritual heavenly battle taking place. We'll see more of this when we get to Daniel chapter 10. And that's what Paul tells us in the letter to Ephesians. We read it last week. We're going to read it twice this week. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, right? That's what Paul said. There are spiritual forces. So apparently, as this little horn, Antiochus, expands into the glorious land on earth, there's also a simultaneous related battle taking place in heaven. And in this battle, the little horn is able to cast down and trample some of the hosts and some of the stars. And it, uh, he becomes even as great as the prince of hosts. Now, that doesn't mean he becomes as great as God. It means he makes himself out to be God. It means he, he, he okay, so Antiochus IV, he took the name Epiphanes. Epiphany, you guys know what Epiphany is, right? The Epiphany, the appearing, the ma- God manifest. Epiphany is what it, what it means. And he thought of himself as a manifestation of the God Uh, the Greek god Zeus. I think ultimately what this is referring to is the satanic or demonic power that was behind Antiochus and, and all who would oppose God and his people. As Antiochus attacks the people of God on earth, there are spiritual forces behind him of evil attacking in heaven. And it's mysterious to me. So that's all I'm going to say about that. No, I'm just kidding. It's, it's mysterious thinking about these battles in heaven and angels, but that's what it says, and it'll even become clearer in chapter 10 of Daniel. Now back to earth and the devastating results. Verse 11, it, the little horn, became great, even as great as the prince of hosts, God, we read that, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. From who? Well, grammatically, it's referring to the prince of hosts. The horn, in all its satanic power, puts a stop to the regular burnt offerings in the temple uh, that are dedicated to God. Offerings meant to worship and honor the Lord are now no longer happening. And the place of His, the prince's sanctuary, was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. So the little horn brings an end to the regular daily sacrifices in the temple of the Lord. It overthrows the sanctuary itself. Now notice why this happens. It's because of the transgressions. Some people think this is referring to the transgressions of the little horn, but again, grammatically and logically, I believe it's referring to the transgressions of God's people. This little horn is a judgment from God. Daniel would have been familiar with this kind of judgment. This isn't like a new thing. Remember, it was because of Israel's rebellion, or Judah, specifically his rebellion against God, that Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah, took Daniel and others captive, as well as removing, if you remember back to Daniel chapter 1, 
removing articles from the temple, sort of himself defiling the temple. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see time and time again, when God's people transgress, he uses the nations around them to bring judgment and repentance to his people. That's the whole theme of the book of Judges, if you want a lot of foundation there. So because of Israel's transgression, their sanctuary is overthrown. The burnt offerings cease. They can no longer make sacrifices. I thought about going into what that meant. You know, we just don't, we don't have time for all that. Here's the facts, ma'am. Truth is thrown to the ground, and it, the little horn, evil prospers. This is not a good time. Truth, the truth of God, His Word, His worship is being trampled on, and evil is prospering. Now, all of this fits with Antiochus Epiphanes, what he did when he came to Jerusalem. History records that he tried to unify. His goal was to unify his kingdom by forcing all his subjects to adopt Greek cultural and religious practices. Go Greek or go home. So for the Jews, he banned circumcision, the sign of the covenant with God. He brought on and into the sacrifices in the temple in 167 BC, and he defiled the temple by burning pig's flesh on the altar and placing an object sacred to Zeus in the Holy of Holies. So think about that. The Holy of Holies, the place where God would come on the Day of Atonement, was now had, uh, it was set up as a, as a place to honor Zeus. He also burned copies of scriptures and slaughtered those who remained true to their faith in God. He was truly a tyrannical, evil ruler. Now remember, Daniel didn't know this vision prophecy would be fulfilled by Antiochus. And I'm sure after seeing this little horn wreaking havoc on earth and heaven, he would have wanted to know, how long, O Lord? How long? Uh, when is this going to take place? How, or specifically, how long will this oppression last? Will the temple be restored? And in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 8, we're given some insight into these questions. Daniel writes, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke. So apparently the angels, I think these are the angels, they're chatting about this vision. And Daniel's eavesdropping, they say, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot, how long will this transgression... Now, here the transgression is referring to the actual act of the desecration of the temple. How long is this transgression going to continue? How long is it going to make God's temple desolate? How long will the sanctuary of God be trampled underfoot? How long, O Lord? So apparently all the angels were not privy to this, the timetable of the vision. But one of the angels turns to Daniel and says, And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. 2,300 evenings and mornings. What does that mean? Well, if evenings and mornings refer to a 24-hour day, then it works out to about six years, three months, and 20 or so days. However, even though many have tried, this time frame doesn't fit exactly with any known uh, events during Antiochus's persecution. Some have said uh, the evening and morning refers to two days, and so it's really half of that, so it'd be half of the six years, three, and that's still 
comes closer to some things, but, but still not, not it. Which could mean, we just don't know the exact events this vision is referring to, if it's to be literal, or it could be, 2300 could be figurative in nature. It may represent a significant but limited period of suffering on the part of God's people. And the fact that this period is measured in days could indicate that God has a precise a calendar for the events of history, a calendar that's accurate to the very day, yet at the same time, this exact time is unknowable to our human efforts to figure it out. The important part is we know God has it figured out. So that's the vision of the little horn and some of why it's believed to be Antiochus Epiphanes. But there's more. If you look down, beginning in verse 22, so if you remember last week, there was the vision of the ram and the goat, the four horns, and then it went on to the little horn, and then it, down starting in verse 15, it started the, the, the conversation with Gabriel and his interpretation, and now that part comes to the little horn in verse 23. We get the description of the little horn. And at the latter end of their kingdom, so after the four kingdoms represented by the four horns, remember the little horn comes out of one of those, when the transgressors have reached their limit, again the transgressors here is most likely the pointing to the Jewish people of that day, over time they've been building in rebellion against God, and so God brings judgment. A king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. So the little horn is a king, and we've already touched on that, but now we see, see that said. In response to their rebellion comes this bold-faced or insolent, insolent king. Uh, he understands riddles, or as the NSB translates, he is skilled at intrigue. He got his kingdom by intrigue through putting aside his brother's son and taking it. Verse 24, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. I think this is speaking, especially since we have this heavenly component of the demonic or satanic power that's behind him. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and people who are the saints. This little horn, Antiochus, had great success at what he did. He was an overachiever in terms of creating fear and destruction, especially with reference to those who remain faithful to God. I mean, generally, uh, people, when they're oppressed, and when, if, if they don't have a firm, solid faith, they, they just go along. No, I do not want to be burned. I will follow Zeus. Okay. But the people who were truly faithful to God, they stood up to him, and they were the ones persecuted. He had a special in a bad way, evil way, satanic way, relationship with the Jews. Alan McRae pointed out in his commentary on Daniel that neither the Ptolemies of Egypt, who was in the south, nor the Seleucids, who, who really took over that Antiochus generals of Syria, had anything to do with Israel until this time, Antiochus. For 150 years, the policy of these kingdoms was hands off Israel. But Antiochus determined that he was going to bring Greek culture and customs to Israel and wean them away from their God and his law. So just mention 
Uh, if you remember Daniel, he's in exile, but shortly after Daniel's death, probably, or right there at the same time, you know, Ezra, Nehemiah, people go back into the land. So the Jews are back in the land. And they're setting, they set up their temple, they start their worship, and the Persians had let them do it. The Greeks were okay with it for a while, and then comes Antiochus. So he's trying to take them from their Jewish culture and thrust upon them his Greek culture. And how did he do that? Well, along with what we've already discussed, Antiochus gave orders to force the Jews to worship pagan gods in the temple of Israel. He ordered the people to offer swine as a sacrifice to a heathen god, and if they refused to worship this god, they were put to death. Verse 25 continues, By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Under Antiochus, deceit, deceit prospered greatly, We'll, we'll, we'll look at an example of that in a minute. In his mind, uh, he prospered greatly. His mind was very expansive about himself. I had a football coach who, when he felt you were getting a little full of yourself, especially when you had maybe done something impressive, you'd caught a ball on the sidelines and kept it in, he would say, Wolves, you're a legend in your own mind. You know, And that was certainly true of Antiochus. He thought he was great, and he was in many wicked ways. Without warning, he shall destroy many. In the books of First and Second Maccabees, uh, these books record events that took place in this intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament. They can be found in the Catholic Bibles, and even though uh, Protestants do not consider them divinely inspired, they're a great historical resource. In 1 Maccabees, we find that Antiochus' initial contact with the Jews took place when he sent a group of soldiers to Jerusalem. Their mission was to pretend to be friends with the Jewish people, but then, without warning, the soldiers took control of the city and the temple. So by his cunning, without warning, he destroyed many, just as the prophecies say. And when the religious Jewish leaders resisted him, he began the severe persecution against them. The time of indignation and wrath had arrived as prophesied by Daniel, again, 350 years before. And again, this, is not, this was not just an attack against the people of God. It's an attack against God himself. Verse 25 continues, And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, this is what we saw in verses 10 and 11 as the little horn did battle in the heavenly realm. And from the outside, Antiochus uh, certainly looked successful. He succeeded in controlling the people of God and bringing an end to the worship of God in his temple. But his evil success would not last. The little horn would be judged by God. His power ended. The end of verse 25, just abruptly even, this is the end of the vision, says, and he shall be broken but by no human hand. Regarding this little horn, who most people believe to be Antiochus Epiphanes, God would have the last word. His acts of terrible blasphemy against God's people, persecution, this caused a rebellion to, to rise up in part of the, the faithful Jews. They were led to, in revolt by the, the Maccabees. 
And after a long struggle, their rebellion caused the Seleucid forces to be driven out of Judah. Yay! All right. The temple was then cleansed and rededicated in 164 B.C. And according to 2 Maccabees, speaking of their oppressor Antiochus, the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him with an incurable and invisible blow. As soon as he stopped speaking, he was seized with a pain in his bowels, for which there was no relief, and with sharp internal tortures, and that very justly, for he had tortured the bowels of others, and many and strange inflictions. The little horn was broken by the hand of God. Thus ends Daniel's vision and its meaning. Ta-da! All right. Now we turn to the message. What's the message here for us? What can we glean from this passage of, of prophecy, fulfilled prophecy even, as we look back in history? As we talked about last week with regards to the ram and the goat, this continues to reinforce that these historical events faithfully seen in vision and prophecy of Daniel reinforce once again the message of God's control over the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms and emperors and empires. God is sovereign over all things, including tyrannical rulers. But there are a couple other messages I'd like to point out from Daniel 2. To be, there's, there's certainly more. I've chosen two. First, the message of spiritual warfare. In Daniel chapter 8, we see a little horn king not only wreaking havoc on earth, but also in heaven. Again, verse 10, it grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts. The little horn was not simply at war against earthly saints, but against the heavenly host. It's as if the curtain is drawn back, and behind Antiochus, we see the spiritual forces of darkness arrayed against our God. And this should say something to us. Uh, spiritual warfare is real. There are battles in the heavenlies. And I would add, when we fail to take this into account, we're unprepared for the intensity of our conflict. We forget that we're fighting against powers that are far greater than mortal men. Powers that we can never conquer in our own strength. Again, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In our attempts to live the Christian life, to share the gospel in our world, to build godly marriages and families, or to fight against our own sinful natures, in all these things and more, we're completely outmatched. I, was, I, I keep wanting to say we're more than conquerors, and that's true too, but we're completely outmatched. We're more than conquerors in what, what I'm going to talk about next. We're completely overmatched by these spiritual forces of evil. And unless the Lord intervenes on our side, we can never stand up against this present darkness. Therefore, we should constantly be fighting on our knees, committing our struggles to God in daily, hourly, even continual prayer. I'd also recommend uh, for, for prep or for 
in the midst of spiritual battle, reading and studying all of Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 specifically. This is a crucial passage for engaging in spiritual warfare by putting on the armor of God. Paul makes this illustration and it's amazing. Acknowledging we're uh, fighting against spiritual forces and then telling us how to fight against them. But I'll leave that to you for homework because we have more. But now I'd encourage us all to remember that we're not alone in our battles. That God is present in our time of need. That our battle is spiritual and only God can provide us with real lasting victory. Do not, ye Americans, go it alone. Don't be independent here. This is not our natural way of thinking, right? We can't see God, so we tend to think of Him as some distant observer or judge. He's like a good baseball umpire. He, he fairly calls balls and strikes, but beyond that, He just doesn't get involved. But Daniel 8 gives us exactly the opposite picture. In Daniel's vision, God is involved with the affairs of our lives. He's actively engaged in the same struggles that we have, swinging away beside us, or or rather hitting it out of the park for us. Daniel's God does not have his arms crossed, impassively judging right from wrong, from a distance. He's involved in our daily warfare against evil. Those who assault us are at the same time assaulting our God. God is engaged in our struggle. But we're sometimes like the disciples in the boat in the middle of the storm. We cry out, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? God, why are you letting this happen to me? Don't you care about me? Be assured He does. He's not distant or absent, but present in the midst of our pain and suffering. Our fight is His fight. But this raises a question, doesn't it? If God is engaged in our struggle against evil, how is it that sometimes we seem to be losing the battle? If the all-powerful God, I mean, that's really the question as we looked at what was going on in heaven and stars and hosts and he's making himself higher. How did that happen when God is God, controls history, and he's fighting for us? Why don't we just march from victory to victory, crushing all the forces of evil underfoot? If the God of creation is our God, why is the storm not stilled for us? How is the little horn able to rise to power and oppress the saints of the Most High? Now, the answer to this question is more complex than we or I probably know or can cover today. God's ways are not our ways. But there's a part of the answer provided for us in Daniel 8, and I want to mention that. Remember, the cause of the problem was not the little horn's power. It wasn't the hate and hatred for God and His people. It was their transgressions, their sins. Again, verse 23, And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king, a bold, fa- a bold face, no one, one who understands riddles shall arise. It was because of the sins of His people had reached the limit of God's tolerance that Antiochus and all his, in all his insolence, cunning, and oppression is unleashed upon them. So we, 
So as we experience times when it seems the enemy is crushing us, when we face depression and fear, physical, emotional, or spiritual attack, and victory seems far from us, we should certainly examine our lives. Now, again, let me be clear. I'm not saying that every time you're attacked spiritually, maybe not even most times, that it's because of your own sin. I am saying that's someplace you need to look, okay? Examine our lives, our hearts, our actions. And when God reveals our transgressions, as God convicts us of our sin, we should pray. Maybe Psalm 51 would be a good place to go. David certainly fell into transgression, his sin with Bathsheba, and his, uh, his psalm of crying out for deliverance and forgiveness. Psalm 51 is a, is a beautiful place for us to go. Just let me read verses 10 and 11. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit." And God, who is faithful, will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And not only that, He will rescue us from our pit of despair, even in His judgments. So even if you're a child of God and you're being, God is allowing something to come into your life for judgment, it's for your own good. It's to show His mercy. It's to lead you to repentance and to return to Him. You've fallen away I mean, the prodigal son, good example, right? He had to get it in with the pigs before he would return, but he did return. We see this in Daniel 8. Even though judgment, the little horn came to Israel because of their sin, it didn't remain. It had a limited time, 2,300 evenings and mornings. So understand this about spiritual warfare. It is real The earthly battles we face have, in a mysterious way, heavenly spiritual components. And this should be a great encouragement to those who belong to God. God, for His purposes, allows us to experience difficulty and even persecution, but it's limited to His timetable, and it's ultimately for our good. And even if we at times seem to be losing the battle, God is always with us, and God will always win the war. And that takes us to the final message from Daniel 8 that I want to look at, the message of God's complete victory. In the face of our own sins, as you're personally doing inventory of your life, and the attacks of the enemy, uh, desperate times, in those times, we can struggle. We can doubt that victory is possible. We can live in Romans chapter 7 where Paul writes, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You ever experience that? We can be tempted to question whether God can really empower us to be victorious over our sin. How can God's purposes to save and sanctify continue in the face of our sin and Satan's constant assaults? The answer to that question comes as we see how Daniel 8 shows God's victory over the evil of the little horn. Remember, and he shall be broken, but not by human hand, but by no human hand. In the end, he's broken. He's defeated, driven out 
by no human hand. God took him out. And Daniel 8 also shows God's restoration of his transgressing people. For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place. God's purposes continue to be fulfilled, regardless of the attacks of the enemy, regardless of the sins of his people. So we can say that if God's purposes were not thwarted, thwarted by the, that time of sin of God's people and satanic persecution of the little horn, then God's purposes will certainly not be thwarted by our own sin and the attacks of Satan in our lives. And if the example of victory and restoration found in Daniel 8 is not sufficient, we can look beyond the transgressions, defilement, and then restoration of the days of Antiochus to an even greater transgression and defilement that by God's grace became the source of our restoration. Let me explain. The defilement that took place under Antiochus was certainly horrific. Wouldn't you say? The things we read. Zeus in the Holy of Holies. Pigs' blood. Being, pigs being burnt and sacrifices. People being killed. Scripture being burnt. The temple was desecrated. And the truth was cast to the ground. But you know what? That was only a foreshadow of what was to come. Even though Antiochus desecrated the temple, at least he did not lay his hands on God himself. But nearly 200 years later, in the person of Jesus Christ, the living temple of God, the place where God dwelt fully in bodily form, was desecrated because of man's sin and Satan's hatred. God's own people rejected their Messiah. As John put it in his gospel, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The leaders, specifically of God's chosen people, sided with the satanic forces of evil that handed the prince of the hosts over to death, crying out, crucify him, crucify him. What greater evil could there be than killing God? The cross is the ultimate expression of the rebellion of God's people against him, the hatred of the kingdoms of this world toward him, and the satanic forces behind both. And we Christians shouldn't think we're any better than those first century Jews. We too were once God's enemies. By nature, all of us were rebels against God. If left to ourselves, we too would have cried out, crucify him, crucify him. As John writes, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We are part of the people who love the darkness rather than the light because our deeds were evil. And even now, when we continue to give in to temptation and sin, our, our own hearts and actions testify to the fact that we have a, a lingering affection for the darkness. But like the transgressions of the Jews and the evil of Antiochus, our sins and Satan's evil will not thwart the purposes of God. Let me say that again. Our sins, your sins, if you're, if you're, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your sins, Satan's evil will not thwart the purposes of God for your life. At the cross, Satan did his worst to Jesus. And as a result, what God had planned from the beginning was accomplished. 
Again, John writes, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Just three days after Satan's apparent victory, God restored the temple that the Jews and the Romans and our sins had desecrated by restoring the body of his son from the grave. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul writes, Christ Jesus himself became being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are all being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God raised up Jesus after this desecration, this crucifixion, this killing, and, and more. He raises him up to be the cornerstone, the foundational stone of his holy temple. Not made by human hands, but a temple of his people. Made up of, of you and I people of God. And now through the power of the resurrected Christ, the Lord is building Jews and Gentiles together as living stones into his new temple, the church. Turning former rebels and enemies, that's all of us, into God's friends through the gospel. Cleansing us from our sin and rebellion. The cross is the place where God gave his final answer to sin and Satan's evil. At the cross, Jesus took upon Himself the full weight of our transgression and our rebellion, dealing once and for all with our sins. If ever there was a time of indignation, of wrath, it was during those six hours when Jesus hung on the cross, bearing the wrath of God against for because of our sin. On the cross, Jesus suffered great indignation which brought God's wrath against our sin to an end. There on the cross, He not only defeated sin and Satan, but death itself. And so guaranteed this ultimate happy ending to all who trust in Him. Just as Christ was raised from the dead in glory, so also all those who are in Him will one day rise in glory. The cross is the guarantee that God's plan will always prevail. Even in the face of our sin and the hatred of Satan, because of the victory won on the cross, the gates of hell can never prevail against Christ's church. Therefore, despite our own worst failures and the enemy's best evil efforts, God will continue His work of sanctification in our lives. He will sanctify each one of us through the slow but present, persistent work of His Spirit. And what do we do? Submit. Submit to His work. That's it, by the way. Submit. I know you want more. We're called to pursue faithfulness and obedience to Him. To, to, to listen to that still, small voice and obey it. Trusting in Christ alone not in our own efforts, and giving thanks daily for the cross. For without the cross, none of this, there would be no victory for us. The cross is the place of His total victory over sin, Satan, and death. And that quite naturally brings us to the Lord's table. And so I'd ask that the ushers come forward and just be seated here in these front row seats that are always empty for some reason. That's strange.
as we turn to our time of communion. Today in Daniel 8, the worship team can come forward too. Did I say that? All right. Today in Daniel 8, we saw God's complete victory over both the transgressions of his people and the evil of the little horn. The horn was broken, uh, the temple was restored. And this foreshadowed the complete victory that Christ achieved on the cross, his victory over our sin and Satan's evil and death itself. And therefore, his victory can now be applied to our lives. We too can overcome the sin that so easily besets us by the power of the cross, by the power of Jesus Christ, by the gift of the Holy Spirit. We can, by God's power, overcome the attacks of Satan in our lives. And by his victory, we too will overcome death. We will be like Christ. We will be resurrected unto eternal life. Amen? We come to the table in celebration and remembrance of Christ's victory on our behalf. At Bridges, we believe that communion is for all who share that victory by putting their faith in Jesus Christ, in Christ alone for their forgiveness of sins. And so, as we pass the bread and the cup, if you've put your faith in Christ, we're glad you're, uh, excuse me, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, we're glad you're here, but we would ask that you let the elements pass you by, because communion is a remembrance and celebration of Christ's victory for those who trust in Him. So as the ushers pass the elements, why don't you stand as Liam leads us in our final song, uh, Christ Alone. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. Mm -hmm.